0: So let
1: though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And as that scripture rests on us, our hearts turn and sing, rejoice in the Lord now and always, tell of the good he has done. Worship the Lord to remember all the joy yet to come, the hope that burns within us, the dark cannot destroy with praise that's never ending we say again rejoice with each breath he's given praise the Lord in these times we live in we will praise the Lord throughout every season I am sure we have every reason to praise the Lord let's sing this together
0: with each breath he's given praise in these times the Lord to remember all of the joy and to
2: Please remain standing, if you're able, and take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Pastor Mike will be preaching this morning on Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 13, Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. And it says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision Well, this morning we have lots to celebrate and lots to rejoice about, and not the least of which is Titus James Lyles was born this past week on July 5th to Tanner and Becca. So we rejoice with them in this new life that has been given to them and to us as a church body. And as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, we want to remember uh, Rick Franklin, who is a missionary that we support, uh, who's serving in Canada with Arrow Leadership. And uh, his uh, ministry is all around training godly leaders. So we want to remember him and his family this morning. So pray with me. Lord, you are unrivaled in power. You are unrivaled in holiness. You are unrivaled in majesty. And yet, God, somehow we as your creations have dared to rebel, have dared to desire the throne for ourselves. God, we have committed cosmic treason in claiming to be gods of our own lives, gods of our own universes. And so God, we confess that uh, we have strayed from you, that we have rebelled from you. God, we are without any hope in this world apart from what happened at the cross. We have no hope and we're without God. But because of Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God, I pray that we would not be casual in our thinking about the sin that separated us from you, that uh, drew us away from you, God, let us feel the weight and the gravity of that sin. Let us know what it has done to us. But God, let us know even more the weight and the power and the strength of what happened at the cross. That Jesus died in our place and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we may have life new. And God, for those who put our faith in Jesus, let us know how bad our sin is, but let us know even more how great our Savior is. And so let that burden of sin be turned to joy as we praise and worship the one who brought us out of darkness and into light and has brought us to know you and to be able to know the joy of living for you and living in you. And so God, turn our hearts and our minds to the cross again and again, that we may find our joy there. God, thank you for new life that you grant. And God, we thank you for Titus James and the new life that has been given to the Lyles family and to us as a church body. Um, God, even let that be a reminder to each of us of the new life that you give to those who put their faith in Jesus, that we are new creations in Christ born again to a living hope and God let us be reminded of that great joy and that that would color everything in our lives. Thank you for Rick Franklin and his family who serve you, uh, by training up leaders. God, would you grant to them encouragement and strength? God let them see fruit of their ministry as leaders who would be trained would be able to effectively point others to you and to serve you. God, that your name would be magnified through what would happen in their ministry. And God, that's what we want this morning. We want to magnify your name. And so let that happen here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: i the...
1: Heavenly Father, it is indeed our prayer, our prayer that you would speak to us this morning. By your spirit, through your word, would you convict our hearts and our minds. God, would we turn in repentance towards you. Father, we pray that because of this morning, we would rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Rejoice because of who you are and all that you've done. We thank you for this time that we get to be together. Speak now through your word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: Good morning. Today I am preaching a message entitled Brought Near by the Blood of Christ. we will be in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 13. And uh, think with me for a moment. Sometimes... When you are far away from someone you love, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, being brought near once again. I think of the many times I've been thousands of miles away from home on the other side of the world, and I get in the airplane, and I look at the map on the back of the seat. I see the, the video map, and I think, wow, that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of energy to get back. And lo and behold, uh, you know, my, my mind can't, you know, wrap its... I can't wrap my mind around it, but pilots uh, bring me back home, and uh, they bring me near. Uh, There's nothing like being brought home and near relationally and hugging your loved ones once again. Well, today we're going to see how God took those who were far off and brought them near to himself relationally so they might be assured of his love and uh, secure in him. Uh, we're going to see how the blood of Christ reconciles us to God and basically brings us who are his enemies near to him as his friends. And only God can do this. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13 is focused on basically what we, what we once were and uh, before becoming a disciple of Jesus. So if you're a Christian, this is, this is speaking to Christians about what they used to be like before they became a believer. And then it's focused on what Christ has done to bring us into a relationship with him. So what what you once were, it just it humbles you. Uh, but what you are now uh, should make you grateful. This is the idea. In fact, if you would, just... Put your eyes once again on the verses that were read just a few moments ago. Ephesians 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. Here's what it says. Therefore, remember... They're being called to remember something... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh... All the non-Jews... Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision... Which is made in the flesh by hands... Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, so here's the big solution, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what we see in these three verses is Five characteristics of unbelievers before coming to faith in Christ. And one sovereign and effective solution. The idea is that we, have, we can have assurance because the blood of Christ reconciles us to God. If you're a Christian today, you have assurance because you were reconciled to God by Christ's shed blood for no other reason if you heard the words oh god loves you and has a, a wonderful plan for your life and you said yes to Jesus you didn't know anything else you probably you didn't believe uh, the biblical gospel but if you have assurance of salvation today it's because of Christ's shed blood now, you know that your efforts pushed you far away but Christ's blood brings you near it's all about the blood. And this is, this is really, Ephesians has been showing us this, tells us in many ways. The primary message of Scripture tells us this. In fact, just a bit of review, chapter 1 of Ephesians is highlighting something very significant. The doctrines of God's grace in Christ. That God selects and saves and preserves believers. All the things that thrill the believer's soul. I was chosen before the foundation of the world. I was predestined to adoption. I was sealed with the Holy Spirit. Wow. This is what the believer says. Wow. But then you get into chapter 2, and it gives some pre-conversion details. And it tells you, you were dead in sin. You were deceived. You were delighting in your sin. You were doomed. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. But God decreed to bring you from death to life. That that He alone, with no help from you, made you alive if you're a Christian today. That that God's power uh, toward all who deserve nothing but wrath was operated on us before we believed. That's why we say, by grace. We have been saved. By grace, it brings us into union with Christ, makes us alive, raised us, seated us with Christ, A recipients of mercy, if you will. Great, the great love of God has been showered upon us, his, his rich grace, his, his lavish kindness. We are, we are literally, as believers, trophies of God's grace that God will even permanently display in Christ the depths of his immeasurable grace, and it's on display now and forever, and it will be on display in increasingly greater measure throughout eternity. And the Christians are saved by God's works for good works, which, as we saw, just irons out any confusion between the connection of salvation and works, that we are saved by grace through faith by God's works, not our works, to glorify God through good works. Now that catches you up to where we are now. Now, what we'll be seeing is that for remainder of chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we're going to see how God's mighty power in Christ forms the body of Christ, brings the body of Christ together. And and what it does is it follows a pattern similar to verses 1 through 10. You know, first it describes our bad status before our faith in Christ. Then it goes on to explain God's response to our need, his good response to our need, and and the resulting uh, goodness that comes for it because of God's acts for his good, his glory, and our good. But there is a slightly different focus when you get to verses 11, 12, and 13. Now, If you're familiar with Ephesians 2, what you'll notice is the first three verses focus on our deadness apart from Christ. But verses 11 and 12, they speak of our estrangement from God, our alienation from God because of our sin. And then verses 1 to 10 are emphasizing uh, the believer's union with Christ in his resurrection and ascension, how God's work in resurrecting Christ benefits us. But verses 11 to 22 emphasize Christ's death, Christ's death as God's solution to our sin problem, which is why, and and we'll come to the Lord's table later on this morning, why we remember, and it says this, that as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, because he died in our place, shed his blood. Uh, this, is, this is the verses that we're going to be looking at today and in subsequent weeks is how, how Jesus' death overcomes the hostility between God and humanity and now how peace exists between Jew and Gentile in Christ's church. That God overcame our hostility toward him in the cross and that Christ's death breaks down the wall of alienation and conflict and separation between Jew and Gentile in the church. And what we've been seeing, and and you can go back and read it, but all people, Jew and Gentile alike, were under condemnation. That's what verses 1 to 3 tell us. We also see in verses 4 to 10 that all believers, Jew and Gentile, have been rescued by the gracious initiative of God. God did it. But what we see here in these verses that we're looking at today is that Gentiles were at a particular disadvantage so they should appreciate God's grace even more. I'm a Gentile, and I appreciate God's grace, that he would, that he would choose me before the foundation of the world to save me who was so far off. It is a wonder of grace that every believer enjoys, but the Gentiles in particular were at a particular disadvantage. And so what we're gonna see here, these three verses, what we once were, five characteristics of that, And then what Christ has done, one amazing solution, one sovereign solution. So focus in with me on this, what we once were. What we once were was far off, far off. And this mirrors verses 1 to 3, the idea, the contrast between the former life and your current enjoyment of God's rescue in Christ. But verse 11, it's just a call to remember something. You need to remember your former life apart from Christ. Then verse 12 gives the five characteristics of Gentile unbelievers, contrasting the former life with current enjoyment of God's free and effective uh, rescue in Christ. Now look, in your life, someone may come up to you, someone you know, oftentimes it's someone you know really well, and they will remind you of something you did wrong, and it'll make you feel bad. That's not what this is. This is remembering so to get ready for something good. This is being reminded so you get ready for something good. So verse 11, it says this. Therefore, remember. Literally, recall. Okay, It's a present imperative. It's the idea of this. Remember a specific thing at a specific time. Let me tell you what it's not telling you to do. It's not telling you to remember your old life every moment of every day. It's not saying you need to keep your old life in mind all the time. I mean, Paul told the Philippians this, forgetting what lies behind, like all my supposed good deeds and all my putrid bad deeds, I'm leaving it behind. What this is is, is a call to recall the truth about you to prep you to spotlight the gospel. So it's remembering something, and here's what he, he said it this way, that at one time in the past, you Gentiles in the flesh, formerly fleshly, and it speaks to them for the first time as non-Jews. He says, you're called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The Jews call you the uncircumcision. Remember. Now, it's interesting that the phrase, the so-called uncircumcision, that shows the hostility between Jew and Gentile that existed. It was a term of derision, the uncircumcised. Like when David said of Goliath, what was this uncircumcised Philistine doing? Uh, But but Paul does not label the Christian or use a derogatory label on them. What does he call believers? Look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The saints, the ones that are being made holy by God, the ones that have been changed by God. Why, though, would you be called to remember And this takes you back, even in in Israel's history, the failure to remember God's powerful deliverance often resulted in a failure to worship God and obey God and keep themselves pure. And so we're being told, remember your former plight, how distant you were from the one true God before he brought you near. Remember your situation before Christ. Now contrast it with the blessings you have in Christ. You formerly were lost in sin. Uh, you were in deadly allegiance to the lust of the flesh. Uh, you were fallen. You were corrupt. You, your human nature uh, made you excluded and alienated. You had a ruinous condition. But here, five specific characteristics of, believer, of unbelievers before becoming believers are brought up. And there are five Theological disadvantages of Gentiles, if you will, five things true of your former pagan state. What are they? Well, it says that, first of all we were uh, first Christless. It says in verse twelve. Look at verse twelve. It says, "Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So you were without you were without the prediction of the Messiah. This is what this means. You didn't know about the Messiah." You were apart from Christ. And and this is an obvious point. Uh, The Gentiles, by virtue of not being a part of Israel, didn't have the hope of messianic promise and the status of Israel's covenant relationship with God. They didn't have that. Uh, The Jews, what did the Jews have? They had the oracles of God, as Romans tells us. They, They heard the gospel first. They had the adoption, the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs. They had, even as Romans 9 tells us, the Messiah according to the flesh. Jesus was a Jew. But the Gentiles had none of this. And picture this. Picture this for a moment. Before they came to know Christ, or before they heard the gospel, they may not have known that there was a Messiah coming. It's so easy for us to look at people who don't believe and go, you should know this. You never told them, but they should know it? What? Like, the Jews knew of a coming Messiah. The Gentiles, before they heard the gospel, would not have known of a coming Christ. They would know nothing of the promised, prayed for, anticipated Messiah. Nor did they care. No thought of God. No knowledge of God. No no expectation for the Messiah. Just a terrifying expectation of judgment. I mean, think of how many people know nothing of Christ, not, not even his name. There are people in this community who do not know the name of Christ. We must tell them. Like, God forbid that anyone would, would live or grow up near us and never hear the name of Jesus but, but for blasphemous cursing or swearing. See, they were Christless. They were without Christ, no hope of the Messiah. But secondly, they were homeless. Homeless, literally, nationless, without community. Keep looking at verse 12. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Means they were homeless. They were nationless. They were alienated. They were foreigners. They, were, they had no participation in the covenant life of Israel, they, they were excluded. From the citizenship of the people of God, the people of Israel. They're outside the sphere of God's blessings. I mean, think about it. Think about when you come across someone who's friendless, it hurt hurts your heart. Or the homeless population, the, 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 the horrible situation, even in Southern California here now, of homelessness. Such a huge problem. And you, you want to have mercy there's a person there's people there's so many people thousands of people with no partakers of a dwelling they don't have it and what this is saying is that the unbeliever is spiritually homeless communityless nowhere to rest alienated from the citizenship of israel outside literally outside the state outside of israel excluded from the corporate life of israel the gentiles were not a part of the citizen rights of israel and that would have been very clear to the people who this was written to. Citizenship or citizen rights would have been very familiar to Ephesians. They were living where people were granted citizenship by paying large sums of money. Certain people got it. But the Gentiles lacked Israel's covenant rights and privileges under the theocracy as the nation of God. Where they were distinctly possessing, being possessed by God as his prized possession. They were apart from God. They were aliens to the divine covenants. They were without messianic hope. It's like Psalm 69 says, I had become alienated with my brothers, a stranger. They were Christless. They didn't have a hope of Christ. They were homeless. They had no community. But thirdly, they were wordless. They had no special revelation. All they had was general revelation, which they should have acknowledged God and his, his creation of the world. But it says in verse 12, they were strangers to the covenants of promises, wordless, no knowledge of the covenants, the covenant of promise that was made with Israel over and over again. Like when God said, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his prized possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Gentiles didn't get that. The covenant of promise, what is that? What does that stand for? It's a systematic summary of all of God's words and acts. His redemptive words and acts. His promises of what he will do. And, the, and, and they didn't know the scriptures. They lacked access to the scriptures. They didn't have guidance from God. They were without special revelation. They only had general revelation, which again should have been enough for them to acknowledge the existence of God. These were pagans outside God's covenant of promise. You see, the Old, the old Testament covenants, about the Messiah, promising a Messiah who would justify and make people right with God by grace through faith. God made covenants with Moses and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, and the promise of the new covenant. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others spoke of God's future blessings and bringing Christ. I mean, if you're a believer today, you know You know, Psalm 119, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, you have the guidance. But the unbeliever, without the word of God, is empty and alone. They're like a barefoot traveler wandering through Death Valley. They're not going to make it. They're helpless. They're unassured. But if you're a believer today... Colossians 3 tells you, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You believe God's promise. Bank on God's covenant. They were Christless, without Christ. They were homeless, without community. Wordless, without special revelation. And fourth, they were hopeless. It says having no hope. Verse 12, having no hope. Hopeless. The idol worshiping. Romans 1 puts it this way. Foolish faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a summary. He's saying, you formerly had even no hope. You could have had false hope. A lot of people live with false hope. Oh, I'm going to live a good life. I'll get to heaven. No, that's false hope. They didn't have a true hope based on the rich inheritance of free grace from God. They were hopeless. And you know what they didn't know? They did not know. And this is why, just stop thinking that unbelievers know what you know. They did not know that God planned to bless all nations through Israel. Israel knew it. They didn't know it. They didn't know of a Messiah that was coming. They didn't know that God would bless the nations. They didn't know the promises. They did not have hope in God They did not know the God of promises, so they opted for idols instead. No excuse. Romans 1 says they're they're without excuse. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth that God exists. And the condemnation was just piling on. Like an overflowing trash bin just filled with sewage. Void souls just filled with all manner of putrid sin. People need hope people need hope but if your soul is unanchored you can only be deluded or despairing you won't have hope you have false hope tell yourself things that aren't true they were christless homeless wordless hopeless and fifth and finally godless it says in verse 12 without god in the world how'd you like to live without god in the world if you're not a believer that's what you're doing You can say you're as religious as as anybody could be. And if you're not a a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are without God in the world. Godless. You know what that means? God did not have them. And they did not have God. They were lifeless. They were excluded from the life of God. That that describes an unbeliever. You be as religious as you want to be. Bow down to as many idols as you want to bow down to. You are without God in the world. In fact, the word there is where we get our word atheist. Someone who denies God. Now, this is an interesting thing. The Ephesians, oh, they were very religious. They were very religious. They had the full spectrum of false gods that they worshipped. Plus, they had the state goddess Artemis of Ephesia. They They weren't atheists as we would know it. What does it mean that they were without God in the world? Here's what it means. They were without a relationship with the true God. They were without... If you're not a believer today, you're without a relationship with the true God, with the one true God who has revealed himself very clearly in Christ, in the gospel. If you're a Christian today, do not believe the lie that says, oh, but there's many ways to God. No, there's not. Open your Bible up. They didn't acknowledge God. He did not know them. They had no covenant relationship, and no matter what their opinion, they're hopeless and without God. It's better to tell the truth. So let's say in your life, you have someone in your life who's difficult because they won't let something go, and they keep reminding you of what you did wrong, which can make you feel really bad, or angry, and it starts arguments. But someone may come up to you and say this. Look, I'm not trying to dredge up the past. I'm not trying to make you f- to feel bad. But wow, I remember what you used to be like. And God has changed your life. And I'm very thankful. I'm grateful. See, that's a better reminder. You're reminded of what you used to be like. It's focused on good, though. This is like when Moses told the Israelites in Exodus 13, Remember this day. You remember this day, the day you came out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Remember that. Well, verses 11 and 12 is that kind of reminder. It's not hammering or harassing you, trying to make you feel bad about what you did wrong. What this is, is this is prepping you for what God did right. You remember your wrong so you can receive the good news rightly. We were far off. Christless, homeless, wordless, hopeless, godless. Godless. But verse 13 gives us this one dramatic, effective, sovereign solution. Put your eyes on verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus. Is it going to tell us that what Christ has done is bring us near? Recon- or reconciled us by his blood. But now, in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They had been outside of Christ. God fixed the problem by putting them in Christ Jesus. And only by his blood could this happen. So verse 13 is is reflecting verses 4 to 10. this, This new closeness to God now. This nearness to God in new community. That their new state, no longer far off. They're now in Christ. That's the key. Now in Christ. They were chosen by God. They had faith in Christ. They experienced closeness with God. There was a reversal of the curse. It was due to them participating in the benefits of Christ's death. The banner of this entire passage, literally over the entire passage is this, brought near By the blood of Christ. To which every Christian rejoices. What is the blood of Christ referring to? It's referring to all the events associated with the cross of Christ. It's calling us to remember Christ suffering and pouring out his life blood. It's calling us to remember Christ crucified and risen and and reigning now and coming again. It's calling us to remember his sacrificial death to pay for our redemption. Now, it would have been difficult for a person back then to hear blood and not think blood sacrifice. It was a normal part of life. It would be very unusual in Ephesus to eat meat not offered for sacrifice at some point. Ephesus was filled with shrines. They had the largest temple in the ancient world, the Artemisium of Artemis Ephesia. They had the largest enclosed altar where they held regular animal sacrifices. Jesus' blood reminds us of the numerous animal sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant Hebrews 9 talks about it. You might go there, Hebrews 9, which all foreshadow the death of Christ. It all foreshadows the death of Christ. In Hebrews 9, in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if, in verse 13, if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more, Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? It goes on in verse 22 to tell us, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is where it 's at. that means by the means by which the nearness to God and relationship with him is even possible it 's isaiah 57 19 promising peace, peace to those far and near it's God welcoming, no longer repelling it 's addressing the problem of sin it's addressing the problem of wicked people and wicked practices it, 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 Ephesians 1.7 even tells us Christ's blood brought forgiveness, redemption, freedom, peace in Christ Jesus, which is the uh, pivotal theological point. That being united into Christ in a profound, dynamic relationship based on his death and resurrection, uh, which was, by the way, predicted, and promised. Like Jeremiah 31 says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. This is why Peter on the day of Pentecost stood up boldly and authoritatively and preached the gospel based on the Old Testament. And he said in Acts 2.39, For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, anyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's why today, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, there is no way that God would save me, you might need to think again. Romans 3 talks about redemption through Christ's blood. Acts 20, 28, he purchased his church with his own blood. Peter put it this way, it was precious blood. You know, we make a lot of purchases in life. Sometimes we regret the purchases. Sometimes we think we pay too much. That's why I like to buy used. I see the sticker and I'm like, wow, who would pay that much? I got a good deal. But when you think of what Jesus did in paying for our sins with his blood, what, you're, what we're talking about is God's magnificent and extravagant purchase of a blood-bought bride. God brought you near, believer, and now you can draw near. Now you can pray. Now you can worship. You have open access. Believer, if you are a Christian today, you have assurance because the blood of Jesus brought you near. The blood of his cross brings us near to God, brings us into Christ's body. Only by Christ's blood are we reconciled to God. There's no other way. Jesus died on the cross. And by the way, he died on the cross on a certain day in history. It happened. And he didn't die on a hill far away from the sight of the people. He died in broad daylight on our behalf. He bore our sins. He took our place so that we might be declared righteous. And we we receive forgiveness and righteousness and new life. You experience that as you encounter the effects of the cross in union with Christ. You, you encounter the benefits of his shed blood. It gives you peace with God and with others today. Colossians 1 tells us, In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So that he would reconcile to himself all things and make peace by the blood of his cross. It says you were once alienated hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what God is doing in the life of every Christian now. And all these people don't like blood language in the Bible. I mean, I don't like blood. Someone said the other day, let's watch a baby birth video. I'm like, no. I saw five live births, I got my quota, I'm good. But some people go, oh no, the cross is too violent, it's, it's cosmic child abuse. Some say, people who profess to be believers, they say, you are foolish to believe in the substitutionary atonement, where Christ died for your sins in your place by shedding his blood. There are people who say, we hurt the church. By saying Jesus shed his blood. Well, without the blood, there is no gospel. Without the blood, there is no hope. The blood reminds us of God's great love. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The blood reminds you of the gravity of your sin, reminds you of the righteousness of the Son and the amazing grace of God by which he would He would make this plan by which Christ's blood brings salvation. That Jesus, the righteous, perfect son, died in your place for your sins. He shed his blood. He took all the punishment. He received all the wrath as he hung on the cross so that people like sinful us could be completely forgiven. Christ's death Brought us near. So we say, with all the saints of every age that put their trust in Christ and are anchored in hope in Christ, we say, we say, what a savior. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. That means we have access to God through Christ's blood, his death on the cross. It combines all the ideas of forgiveness purifying us from the guilt of sin and righteousness via the substitutionary atonement, Christ in our place, paying the price for our sins and freedom, appeasing the wrath of God, propitiating the wrath of God against sinners. The blood cleanses. The blood cleanses, gives you forgiveness, gives you peace Even if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even in the picture of Revelation 7, those in white robes have come out of the great tribulation have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Christian, today, if you have assurance, it's because of the blood of Christ that has brought you near. God brought you near. You didn't. Now you can draw near. Open access to God. Through Christ, who is our life. The Christian sure hope. We were like desperate mariners just lashed to the mast. We cling to Christ, and he holds us fast. He's the sure word. He's our home. He gives us a family. He's our hope. Your future in Christ, believer, is secure in him. Nothing can change that blessed truth. Nothing. Your hope is in Christ. You have assurance of eternal life. That will cause you to press on in this life, serving Christ, standing firm, holding firmly to the word, knowing that nothing you do in Jesus' name because of who he is and what he has done is in vain. Nothing. Christ is our God. He's our authority. He's the way. He he, he holds all sway. What, What he says goes. He's the governor over our conscience and our souls. We were sinful. We were hopeless. We got salvation not of our own doing, as God sovereignly brought us near. And sometimes you still strive. Sometimes you're forcing it. Sometimes you're you know, giving yourself false hope, or sometimes you're, 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 you know you're saved by grace through faith alone, but you live as if it's your strength alone. And you keep trying to get it right, and you, you keep getting it wrong, and you get into this rut of self-effort, or, or you, get, you slide into the pit of, of self-condemnation, or maybe self-congratulation. What you tell yourself matters. Don't tell yourself lies. Tell yourself the truth. You go down that low road of, of self-condemnation or self-congratulation, you take the high road to, to cross infatuation, like be in love with Christ. Like, let Christ thrill your heart and restore your mind and, and refocus you on what is right. That's what you need to do. He'll give you, he'll give you the strength you need. Like, you got to focus on 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 what you once were before becoming a disciple of Jesus so that you would focus on what Christ has done to rescue you. And looking at these things, I mean, looking at these things, the the five characteristics of unbelievers before coming to Christ, and and then this one dramatic solution, it, it makes me deeply concerned about a few things. It makes me very concerned about a couple things. First, how many people who profess faith in Christ don't seem to realize how deep their sin problem was. They somehow think that God took a good person and made them better. That's not the gospel. You didn't believe the gospel. That's not it. Somehow people get the idea that God took a good person and made them better rather than making a dead person live. Well, I'll tell you, unless you understand the depth of your depravity, you will not experience or appreciate the the depths of God's grace in saving you. You will take it lightly. And I, I want you to grasp this truth, that we were totally lost, but the blood of Jesus reconciles us to God. And that what we once were makes us humble. There's no swagger in the true Christian. What we, what we are now makes us grateful. And the second thing I'm concerned about is how how many souls, how many souls in our spheres of influence have no knowledge of Christ, and they're separated from God, and they do not know the word, and we cannot assume that they know what we know. And they will not know what we know unless someone tells them. And we must do it. And we must do it enthusiastically, and gladly, and willingly, and boldly. And and there's a lot of Christians who think that they gave the gospel but they just gave a clip, they gave a little reel, they gave a segment. Maybe they said, well, you should know who Jesus is, or you should know the benefits he gives. Well, a lot of people, they never get to the blood, they never get to the sin. You can't preach the gospel without talking about sin, and you can't preach the gospel without talking about Christ's blood. It's not possible. I remember once hearing a child evangelist gave us an acrostic, Gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L. And I remember he was just hammering this point. It was so good. He says, the S is sin. Everyone has sinned. You know how many times people just go, oh, say yes to Jesus? God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, believe in Jesus. What? Why? Why should I? Tell me why. Tell me I'm a sinner lost and under the wrath of God. Oh, I don't want to make anyone feel bad. Okay, well, go to their funeral and feel bad then. And P was, he poured out his blood He says, you know how many people leave out the blood when they preach the gospel? Don't leave out the blood. I mean, think about it. What if you had the opportunity to preach to everyone on the Titanic the day before it sank? I don't think you're going to say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can have peace and joy and fulfillment. That wouldn't have applied to all that would perish. No, you must tell them, you're dead in your sins. Your only hope of rescue is to trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and you trust what Jesus did at the cross and you will escape God's wrath. That's the true gospel. We are brought near by the blood of Christ. Get it right, Christian. You could never do it, but God has done it. The testimony of your life must be the blood of Jesus saved my life. And you just sit in that truth and you dwell in that truth and you, you marinate on that truth, you meditate in that truth and, and, and what you see happen, your attitude adjusts. Your hatred melts away because you remember where you came from and you become humble and you know what Christ has done. It leads you to a life of gratitude and love. And Lord, we thank you that nothing we can do will save our souls more if we're a Christian. Lord, may uh, we, by your grace, keep remembering what you did and keep preaching the gospel to ourselves and keep letting it wash over our souls and keep letting it renew our minds, Lord, that you would give us the strength we need to keep letting it reign supreme even when our thoughts fight against it. Lord, remind us, Lord, that your, your choice of us was not some you know, spur-of-the-moment random act of kindness but, but part of your predetermined plan that you brought us near by the blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna come now to the Lord's table where we remember Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Uh, it's not a table where we rehearse our sins over and over again and condemn ourselves. It's a table where we remember what we were and praise God for what Christ has done. It's, it's where the family comes together. That we, we're told to do this, God says. You're never told in scripture to, to take the Lord's table alone. It's the family coming together. It's the family of God coming together. If you're not a Christian today, you already know this table is not for you, but I will just tell you this. You heard the gospel today. You can believe in the Lord Jesus now and be saved and partake with us. We were told, and Jesus set this up. On the night that he was betrayed, that he was going to the cross, he said, this is my body, which is for you. And he wasn't doing some weird thing where he says, this is gonna become my body. That's just a lie. He's saying, this is going to remind you of my body, which, was, which, will, which died, which I, I, he was saying it before he went to the cross. He was saying, this will remind you that I died in your place. This will remind you that my body was broken for you. And then he took the cup and he's like, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's not turning into my blood. It's, it's going to remind you of my blood that was shed once for all. And Jesus said this. He said, as often as you eat this, Do so in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we're remembering you right now. We're thanking you for dying in our place at the cross for our sins. Lord, we're thanking you for your great love and your mercy that you poured out on our souls that we would even know these truths, that we could even be saved. There's no way we could ever have brought this about. Only by your grace. Jesus, after supper, took the cup and said, this covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that as often, you said this, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. Our life is yours, Lord. I wanna serve you with every ounce of strength you give us. And our hearts in our best moments, in times of clarity, our hearts cry out, come Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.
1: Would you stand if you're able as we close?
0: Here to feel hungry souls, taste and see.
3: Before we go, just a few announcements. So we had a whole bunch of kids, junior high and high schoolers at Hume Lake this last week. If you run into a junior high or high schooler, ask them how it went. Let them know you were praying for them. And also that you continue to pray that the word of God... Uh, would continue to have its effects as God intends upon their hearts and lives. And uh, there's a Cambodia-Thailand missions trip that's going to go on in October. If you're interested in going, there's an info meeting today at 1230 in A1. Uh, Mommy and me for moms and kids birth to second grade is... This Thursday at 10 a.m., Music Mania is going on this week, an awesome week for 1st to 8th graders to learn and then perform a gospel-centered musical. Uh, There's a program Friday night you can go to right here. Uh, Primetime Bingo and Ice Cream Social if you're over 55. Uh, Note the date change, July 28th. Missions Conference, uh, July 29th. All Church Beach Baptism and Barbecues, uh, Wednesday, August 9th. The missions course is coming up. Sign up for that. Starts September 19th. And Grace Orange Academy is coming. A lot going on. And women's retreats and men's retreats this fall. So check into that as well. As we close, uh, hear the words of Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. And now, uh, may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. And Lord, thank you. Uh, we have prayed dependently. We have sang your praises, and we have heard your word. Now send us now uh, out by your grace to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me